Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we're on question 108, we're on actually page 108 in the Catechism, uh, and we are beginning our conversation around the Ten Commandments. Um, we said last week, what, what sets apart the Ten Commandments in Scripture as different from any other commandment? Or, or parts of the law, you remember this? Okay, God wrote it down on tablets with his own finger, that's important. Yeah, the people heard the commandments spoken from Mount Sinai. You remember this? It's, uh, it's uh, Exodus chapter 20, and the people hear God speak the commandments to them. And at the end of the Ten Commandments, what do they say? They say to Moses, please, please ask God not to speak to us anymore. <laughs> well, you, know, you, you talk to him and tell us what he says. Right? Because they say, if he, if he speaks to us anymore, we'll die. Um, so the commandments are set apart because they're, they are audibly given to the people. And it's in these commandments that they, that they, uh, that they consecrate themselves uh, to God. Uh, again, with the blood of a, of a, of a bull. Um, and this is, how the, this is how the covenant is cemented. The, the Mosaic covenant is, is, is cemented. Um, is through this um, audible giving of the law and then this, uh, this uh, consecration of the people and remember what, what Moses says, remember this, I love this, he says, behold the blood of the covenant. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Oh, where should our minds go? Yeah, to, to the Last Supper, Jesus saying, this is my blood of the new covenant. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's, there's actually, as opposed to the, to the Old Testament being basically, and I'm going to say this intentionally, unhitched from the new, what is it? It's fulfilled in Jesus. And actually it's fulfilled in Jesus' body, the church. Um, now, do we as Christians fulfill the, fulfill the commandments perfectly? No, okay. Uh, but Jesus has given us his grace so that we can, so that we can attain to, um, to uh, perfection even. Um, and not only that, but, but, uh, but Jesus has been righteousness for us. And that's the point we've really got to get, is that he fulfills the law on our behalf. Um, he doesn't abolish it, he fulfills it. Okay, so let's go to the first commandment. This is on page 108, question 267. What is the first commandment? The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. What does it mean to have no other gods? It means that there should be nothing in my life more important than God and obeying his will. I should love, revere, trust, and worship him only. Okay, there should be nothing more important. Um, really, nothing? Yes, this is unqualified, nothing. <laughs> nothing more important in my life. Um, and that actually means, in addition to that, that there can be no compartmentalization of life to a point where, um, where uh, loving God and obeying his will is, is, is not a part of it. 
Um, so I've known certain people through the years who said, okay, uh, I've got my life, and if I think of my life in terms of like uh, drawers and a dresser, right? I've got a drawer here for my family, I've got a drawer here for my business, I've got a drawer here for, uh, for my church, and I've got a drawer here for all the stuff I do in private. Right? And one of the three or four or two of the four uh, will be like, yes, Lord, I am obedient to you there. <laughs> but in the others, what is it? Not at all. Um, <laughs> it's fine. That's my drawer. I get to put what I want in it. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, I don't know if you, if you grew up like this, but, but in my family, there was, a, there was a drawer in the dresser in my parents' room that was awful. Right? I still to this day don't know what was in it. <laughs> but but uh, probably some, some important papers and things like that. But, but it's just to say that, um, that with God, you, you can have no uh, drawers that are outside of his, of his will and outside of obedience to him. Um, and uh, I've known people through the years who, who said, you know, up until this point, well, I'll tell you about one story. Um, years ago, uh, there was a Nigerian businessman who was spending some time in California because his son had taken a job in, in the area and had, had um, gone to college in California and he got a three-month visa to spend time with his son. And he came specifically to evangelize his wayward son. And it, it, it really wasn't going very well. He came to my office one day and he shared his story about what had happened to him. And he said that he, he, his wife had always been a member of the Indian Church in Nigeria, and, uh, and he had always been sort of one of those guys who said, well, I'm a Christian in church, and that's basically it. Um, and every other part of my life, I'm not a Christian. And he was very, very overt about this. And he said uh, that he was, he was a businessman, and he had been a contractor who had been building uh, all kinds of buildings and homes and things like that. And uh, he was basically bankrupt. And um, the, the local priest found out about his bankruptcy <laughs> and, and said, uh, and, and he, he talked to them and, and the guy said, well, is there any, is there any help that, that I can get? And he said, well, yes, there's this thing that, you, that I can send you to. And so what is it? It's a six-week retreat for business leaders that the Church of Nigeria puts on. He said, I can't leave my business while I'm in bankruptcy <laughs> for six weeks. And, and the priest said, are you bankrupt or not? You know, just basically said, are you bankrupt or not? And so he did. He went on this six-week retreat for business leaders, and he came out of this, of this retreat deeply converted by it. Because what they were talking about was that was this basic truth that some people leave all of their, they leave their business life apart from uh, following the commandments, apart from, uh, apart from Christ, apart from obedience. And he came back uh, committed that he, would, that he would change things. Um, so here's a guy who had hundreds of people working for him at a certain point, and, and he decided that because this priest had sent him on this, he was going to do something for him, and he decided to build him a new house. And he got out there with his truck and with bricks and with everything else, and he just started building this house, and he had finished it um, you know, several weeks later. Um, did it all out of nothing. I mean, he didn't have any money, and he just sort of said to people in the church, hey, I'm going to do this. Would you give this? <laughs> and people did he got it done. And he told me that over the years, he's, uh, he's built 20 such houses. He's probably built more now. Um, but in addition to that, uh, he's seen how his business has flourished. And, and I said, well, what do you think is the, what do you think is the answer? He said, well, 
I treat my employees well. <laughs> I pay them what they're worth. I pay them what, what they work for. Um, he said, I don't cheat on my taxes anymore. Um, I pay my debts on time. Um, I live on what I make. And he said, everything's changed. Everything's changed. Um, and, and I said, well, you seem to be doing pretty well. He's like, yeah. I was able to leave my business with a trusted employee for three months while I came here um, because I trust him and he trusts me. And he said that relationship didn't exist before. So you see what's going on. Um, the, the people of Israel are called um, to be a people who are consecrated to God and to him alone. And therefore the first commandment is what? I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, to be consecrated to God alone means they can be consecrated to no one else. No other God in particular. Can you worship God perfectly? No, only our Lord Jesus Christ worshiped God perfectly. He leads the church today to seek to do the same. Indeed, one of the things we're talking about during Ascension Tide is how Jesus at the right hand of the Father intercedes uh, to the Father and worships the Father perfectly and always has and never stopped. Um, one of the things that, that comes into focus in Ascension Tide is this, that we are, we are brought with him to the right hand of the Father. And this is what enables the church's worship. You see that? We are his body and we are with him where he is. Um, this is what enables the church to worship. This is how he leads the church uh, to do the same. Why are you tempted to worship other gods? I am tempted because my sinful heart is still drawn to false gods and their appeal for my allegiance. Um, false gods constantly appeal for your allegiance because that's the only thing they can get from you. Um, this is part of the thing that, I, that, comes, that comes into focus for me is that We're always tempted to kind of choose sides, right? Which side are you on? Um, and, and very often this is, uh, this is a very subtle temptation. It's to mark out, I'm on this side and not that side. Um, and very often, I think, and this was, this was, I think, said last week in the sermon, quite powerful, was that we were often tempted to, to delineate our position um, rather than pledging our allegiance to God himself. Um, and we do so, um, well, it's a, it's a dangerous thing to do. Um, but false gods can only appeal, uh, I think it's important, can only appeal for your allegiance. How are you tempted to worship other gods? I am tempted to trust in myself, possessions, relationships, and success, believing that they will give me happiness, security, and meaning. I am also tempted to believe superstitions and false religious claims and to reject God's call to worship him alone. Let's break all this down a little bit. Uh, who here has never been tempted to trust in themselves? Yeah, all right. <laughs> Not me, I'm going to put my hand down. Um, this, is, this is in so many ways the, the kind of classic American story, isn't it? Read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, right? Um, Nobody reads Ethan Frame anymore, but you know it's that kind of stuff where you get you get this idea like you are you are exceptional, and you need to get it done because there's nobody else who will do it but you, um, and you're the and you're the only one you can really trust. Uh, anybody who's ever watched a spy thriller, right? You ever watched? I love I love spy movies, but one of the things I constantly say is trust no one. Trust yourself. Because you're the only one you can really trust in all this. You don't know who the mole might be, so you trust no one. Um, 
And this is a problem for us uh, because we know that we are the most untrustworthy people in the world to ourselves. To trust in our possessions, yes? I mean, when was the last time you woke up in the middle of the night and the power was out? What went through your brain? What went through your mind? Well, if they don't turn it on, how am I going to make breakfast? Right? If, if this doesn't get done, how am I going to take a hot shower? We worry about what happens when our possessions fail us. Have you ever had a car that you constantly worried was going to break down? got that right now. I've got, a, I've got a tire. It's probably going to go out eventually. Right? I'm just certain that it will. But I'm like, let's ride the life out of it. Because, you know, I, I bought this car for not very much and, and I'm, I'm just going to enjoy it. I'm going to ride it until i got to replace the tires. It'll be the first major repair I have to do on this thing. That's going to be amazing. So, but, but it does fill me with a bit of anxiety, right? That this tire is going to go out at the worst possible time. And what am I doing? I'm trusting in my possessions. And there's something sinful about this. I'll admit that to you. I trust in my relationships. Um, you know, when have you had a friendship that's in turmoil and you start to say, oh no, what is my life? Anybody have it? Anybody had that happen? Okay. How about dating relationships that go wrong? And you say, oh no, <laughs> what is my life? Right. I mean, I remember in college, I tried to get Jenny Gibson to go out with me and she turned me down worst thing that ever happened to me at the time. And I was angry about it, right? But, but I was trusting in her and not trusting in God. Um, we even could do this in, in, in ways that we try to tell ourselves are holy, to trust in our wife or trust in our husband. That can be unholy. Um, when, when our spouses fail us, our world is in turmoil, um, that's not okay either. That's a mess. We trust in success, don't we? Especially recent college graduates, I'm talking to you. You know, the success that you're told, you know, and, and I, I hope the I hope the graduation talk was, was good yesterday and not, not the one that says, you have achieved and you will achieve great things in this life and everything will be great. We sort of have this narrative of achievement. Right? If you do the following things in order, you'll be successful. And is that true? Absolutely not. It's not true at all. And in fact, we don't quite realize just how much this disenfranchises people who haven't done everything right according to that exact narrative of success. It says you can't do it because you messed up here. Um, and what do we know to be the truth? Like, listen, nothing is inevitable. Right? Just because you robbed a bank at 19 years old doesn't mean you can't do things. And, and we, we try to believe this, and it's just not true. Um, that narrative of success will fail us over and over again. It's this idea, if I do all of this, if I pay my mortgage on time, you know, if I don't do this, I don't do that, then everything will be great. And what does Scripture tell us? There's only one human being that ever did everything, that did everything right and crucified him. That's, you know, that's, that's the opposite of the success narrative. And we trust in that all the time. Uh, but we believe this will give us happiness. And what is happiness? Oh. <laughs> happiness is a temporary thing. Um, happiness, is what, happiness is what our brains do to us when we, when we think, okay, well, this is what I feel like when everything's about to be okay. 
And it's a shortcut. It's a mental shortcut that helps us to say, I think everything's going to be good. This is going to be a good day. Because I don't think anything bad is going to happen. I'm pretty sure it won't. So you wake up happy, and you wake up excited, and you wake up ready to go. And then what happens? Well, you're disappointed. Well, why? Because that's just happiness. And happiness is, is, a, is an emotional state. Um, it's not a bad thing. It's just the way it is. Um, we believe these things will give us security. Security, my friends, is an illusion, right? It's a total illusion. It doesn't exist. Um, when you get on that airplane and you put on your seatbelt, that seatbelt is not going to save your life. Um, not on an airplane. It will in a car, but it won't on an airplane. That seatbelt is not helpful, really. If that plane goes down, it's going to go down. Um, security is an illusion. Um, you know, we do this all the time. We, we think that because I've got several thousand dollars in my bank account, everything's good. Um, and, and the reality of it is that could all disappear tomorrow. Um, security is an illusion. Now, job security is an illusion. How many people have you known that gave up great opportunities because they felt like they had security in their current job? Well, probably you yourself, right? Um, it, it's, it's, it's an illusion. Um, we also think that they will give us meaning. Um, and the search for meaning is, is at the heart of who we are as human beings. Um, the problem is that we will find meaning uh, in the very things that we know are fleeting. In fact, the prophet Isaiah makes fun of this when he makes fun of those who make idols. What do they do? They chop down a tree, right? They burn half for firewood, and they turn the other half into an idol. They worship the idol, and they burn the firewood. How much sense does that make? None. Yet we do this all the time. We engage in this activity constantly. Uh, where we'll gain meaning from things that we know we can just burn in our fireplace. Um, I'm also tempted, and this is where things often get uh, worse, is I'm tempted to believe superstitions and false religious claims and to reject God's call to worship Him alone. Um, believing in superstition, believing in these false religious claims, which, which we very often, and this is, the, this is the wild thing, we actually know they're false. Yes? Um, like how many times have you heard things spoken as if they were references to Scripture and they're not? Oh, like God helps those who help themselves. That's in the Bible somewhere, isn't it? No, it's not. It's not. Is it true? In a way, I suppose. Um, but not really, right? <laughs> not really. Not at the end of the day. Um, this is very common for us today, um, you know, especially as we see a uh, we see a church that is increasingly unhitched from uh, from Orthodox Christianity. I'll just put it quite simply um, that that it's almost easier to believe in superstitious claims than it is to believe in the actual. Um, and. Lastly, of course, is to reject God's call to worship Him alone. Um, and we very often come, uh, we come to this place, and we've come with some other end in mind. Um, and, and those are also uh, violations of the first commandment. 
I mean, maybe you came here today to, to just see your friends, you know, <laughs> and say, well, oh yeah, we're also going to do that thing where you worship as well. <laughs> I guess that's an added benefit. <laughs> uh, no. This is the compelling reason uh, to worship God alone. All right, the second commandment. What is the second commandment? The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. What does the second commandment mean? God's people are neither to worship man-made images of God or of other gods, nor make such images for the purpose of worshiping them. Um, Christian practice has almost always, and I say almost always, avoided the depiction of God the Father. Why have we, why have we consistently done that? because of the first commandment, right? Um, the, the big reason is that God the Father has no outward form, um, has no outward form to worship. Um, God is a spirit. Um, all that changes, though, and I'm going to say a little bit more about this as we go through. All that um, is, is deeply altered um, by the fact of the incarnation. I'm going to say more about that as we go on. But the reality of it is that, that the people of Israel understood they were not to make an image of God. Uh, which was, by the way, the predominant religious expression in their world at that time. Right? Uh, you worship, you know, you're a Philistine and you worship God Dagon. And Dagon is a, is a gigantic uh, man-shaped <clears throat> being, right? With hands and arms and, and legs and a face. Um, all the Greeks had their temples in their cities. Uh, with an image of their God at the temple. Um, and this is the image that people would go in to worship. Uh, the, the Canaanites had their wonderful gods, right? Uh, Baal and Ashtaroth, who are depicted, and I don't know if any young ears in here, not too young to hear this, but, but they're depicted as a pregnant woman, always. Why is that? It's a fertility cult. As a pregnant woman and as a man with greatly exaggerated genitals. Why? These are, in a sense, like play figures. They're meant to entice the god and goddess uh, to, to enact fertility. Um, and this is, how you, this is how you worship those gods. Indeed, um, temples filled with prostitutes are a normal part of Canaanite life. Why? In many, many places in nature. Because, because you meet the god or the, especially the goddess, through what? Through erotic um, encounters. That's how you do it. Um, and this is what God is saying to the people. It's not going to be like that for you. Um, because, um, because God cannot be depicted in that way. Um, and they are also not to make any other images of any other god uh, for the purposes of worship. All right. Now, this is an important thing. Does this mean no images of anything whatsoever can be made? Not at all. Um, in fact, in the Old Testament, lots of things are commanded that they be made, like images of angels and snakes and all kinds of other things. And the temple was highly adorned with all kinds of images. But those images are not images of the God of Israel. Um, and, of course, you know this, that uh, during the period of the kings, the kings were constantly bringing the, uh, the temple uh, imagery 
or not the temple entry, but the, the cultic imagery of Baal and Ashtoreth into the temple. Um, because the fertility, the fertility cult was coming into that temple um, and infecting the worship. And what is it that God does about this? Well, first he raises up a king who will throw all that stuff out and burn it all out. Uh, but then what happens? Next generation comes in. Why? Well, because the people are married to those of foreign nations, and foreign worship breaks in. Um, anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. Well, it actually is. Um, okay. Go ahead. Yep. Yes, so uh, this is often a point of confusion. Um, Jim Packer's wonderful book, Knowing God, has a little section on images because he covers the Ten Commandments in that book. And he basically says, just don't have any images, right? <laughs> and, and he's since moderated his position. If you buy the new book, which is, uh, oh my goodness, I can't remember it. There's an updated edition, and he talks a little bit about this. And, and I've talked to him, he's a friend of mine, uh, and I've talked to him personally about this issue, and he says, Listen, the problem is not making images. The problem is making God in our image. He's absolutely right. Um, what is it that the, that, the, that the ancient cults were interested in? They were interested in making God like them. Right? If we're obsessed with fertility and sex, the God must be obsessed with fertility and sex. Um, if we're obsessed with, with wealth and power, then the God must be obsessed with wealth. Think about how the Greeks depict their gods. What are, the, what are they all about? Yeah, power, right? Uh, uh, wealth. I mean, there's a reason they think about them kind of sitting up, you know, up at the mountains eating ambrosia all day long, right? Because if your life is miserable and the life of toil, then you want to, you want to think of your god as not having that at all. Uh, so that's really the issue. And I think, I think talking with Jim about this, you know, he... He's, he's greatly changed, he's, he's aged well, <laughs> and, uh, and, he, and he's got a great deal of, you know, kind of openness to this. Um, and of course, this happens with all of us, doesn't it? As we, as we age, our positions become moderated, but not in a bad way, in actually a really good way. Um, so I want to say that. Go ahead. Yes, can, can you hold that thought? Okay. Ethan's talking about Good Friday and Venerating the Cross. We'll get there. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a question about that I want to get to. How did Israel break the first two commandments? Israel worshipped the gods and the nations around them, neglected God's law, and corrupted the worship of the temple, thus earning God's punishment. So, in the first temple, what you have is you have, you have the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies, which, by the way, no one gets to see ever. Why is it that no one gets to see that? Well, the high priest does, occasionally. It's to make it very clear that God is not visible. God is invisible. Um, what happens in the outer courts, though, during those years is a different matter. And the kings often bring in uh, Asherah poles, which are very you know, large phallic symbols. Um, they bring in all kinds of things that are images of the cults around them. Um, and this is a this is a significant problem. Um, 
not just because it's worship of another god, but because it's a, it's a kind of syncretism. Um, and we don't, we, we actually know this from uh, ancient sources that archaeologists have dug up, tablets that say things like, may God bless you by his asherah, right? May Yahweh bless you by his asherah, which is, which is a kind of syncretism, right? Uh, may God bless you by his phallic symbol. <laughs> okay, these, are, these are all a kind of deep, deeply ingrained idolatry in that period. Um, and, and they earned God's punishment through this. The cause of the exile in Babylon was this syncretistic uh, cult worship inside the temple. Um, the, the, the sanctuary is fouled by this. Um, and what happens? Not only is the temple torn down, but the presence of God in the temple through the Ark of the Covenant is taken away. Um, so that even when they come back and rebuild the temple, what's not there? God has left the building. He's not there anymore. He's gone. And the people still understand in the first century, uh, when, when the incarnation happens, they still believe that uh, God is gone from his temple. This, this is kind of a... A parody. Um, so when you read, I think this is really important. When you read things like uh, the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, and you meet Anne and the prophetess, and you meet Simeon, and you meet people like this, and you meet oh, oh this is wonderful too. You meet Zechariah, and you read those canticles, and we read them off in a morning prayer. That's what's being spoken of. Um, is that uh, God has had compassion and mercy on His people to the point where He's come back. Why did the nations make such images? Israel's neighbors worshipped false gods by means of images or idols, believing they could manipulate these imaginary gods in order to gain favor with them. Um, idolatry is all about manipulation. Um, it's all about enticing the gods to do certain things for you. Um, if your crops are failing or your sheep aren't reproducing fast enough, it's because um, it's because the fertility gods have, have, have are angry with each other. Right? So what do you do? You you, you entice them. You kind of uh, I mean, it's kind of like saying, well, uh, you know, let's let's get Ashtaroth and, and Baal a honeymoon suite. You know, and, uh, this is probably not exaggeration. So let's. Let's, let's get them excited about each other again. Um, if, uh, if, if your crops fail, or if there's a flood, or if there's famine, uh, it's because the gods are, uh, are put out with you. And what do you have to do? Well, you, you just didn't offer the right sacrifices. So you gotta go manipulate the gods. Um, and, and I should say, this often seems very far from us, doesn't it? As, as modern people's kind of, oh, that's, that's very quaint. <laughs> and, and the reality of it is we do this stuff all the time, don't we? We make these kind of bargains. Um, we say, well, you know, maybe if I do things this way, then, then, uh, then everything will go right. Um, and it's just not true. Um, now, let's also say, there are some things that you can do well that benefit you, right? And I'm not saying that. Um, but I'm saying we make these little bargains. We try to manipulate that very thing in the pews sometimes. You say, Lord, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you, and everything will be good. And, and that's, that's, I'm just telling you, that's idolatry. Okay. 
because you're making God in your image. You're a person who bargains. He doesn't bargain at all. Okay. Go ahead. Sure. I'll be sure to circle back on that. Um, let's go to 276. Are all carved images wrong? No. God, who forbids the making of idols and worship of images, commanded carvings and pictures for the tabernacle. These represented neither God nor false gods, but rather angels, trees, and fruits from the Garden of Eden. So unlike, and this is, this is really important, the Muslim tradition is very much not just iconoclastic, but is, is opposed to any creation of any image whatsoever. Um, and, and so if you go to, you know, if you've ever been to Spain and you see some of the old Moorish uh, buildings, or if you've been to the Middle East and you've seen uh, Muslim buildings, there's mostly just writing and decorative work. And some of it's amazing. Um, but there's an avoidance of depicting anything on earth. Um, and it's based in an interpretation of this text, which, which goes wrong because it's not anchored in the whole of Scripture. Um, and this is a point that we just need to make, is that um, we have to interpret the commandments in the light of what happens in the rest of Scripture. That's a very important thing. We often don't do that. But, but here is just to say that God actually does command certain things to be made um, like that. Um, and, and there's reason for it, um, which I can say more about. Are idols always carved images? No. Relationships, habits, aspirations, and ideologies can become idols in my mind if I look to them for salvation from misery, guilt, poverty, loneliness, or despair. Of course, we've said a little about this this morning, but these relationships, habits, aspirations, and ideologies can become idols in my mind. Um, and I think Father Matthew spoke very well with this last week on ideologies. If you missed it, it's on the podcast uh, and on the website. But, but. Ideologies are probably the most provocative in the sense that we feel like by clinging to an ideology, we have some safety. Um, and you may know people who cling wholeheartedly to an ideology, not because they particularly believe it, but because their friends believe it. And they want to be in with their friends, and they don't want to be an outcast, and they don't want to have to explain their, the uniqueness of their position to their friends. So they say, well, I'm one of you. I'm just join this group. I'm in, totally. Unquestioned, unquestioning fealty to the party. Yes. And that has a very dark side to it. Um, I've been reading uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn lately, and he tells the story of a, of a, of a communist party uh, speech. And at the end of this speech, which was not very good, he says <laughs> that everyone felt compelled to stand up and clap. This was in the 1930s. Everyone felt compelled to stand up and clap endlessly. And it went on for eight minutes or so, and then this one factory owner just was too tired to continue on. And so he sat down. Um, 
everyone else gradually, the, you know, with him sitting down, and petered out. Well, the party came after him. They threw him in the gulag for 10 years. Well, why? Because he failed to give the homage which the masses were giving to what wasn't a very good speech. Right? And, and he had lost his individuality. And, and Solzhenitsyn calls, he calls attention to this and says, when we have a society in which, uh, in which freedom of expression is limited, um, we lose all this. Um, Christians look at that and say, the, the ideology of the masses always tends to be idolatrous. Um, so, yeah, well, that, that has a dark side, too. And I think, I think we need to you know, avoid both ends of the spectrum. It's an important thing. Go ahead. Well, for the Christian, you're always guided by, by the, you know, the question was, how do you, how do you, we're always surrounded by these kind of various things, and, and how do we know the truth? Well, for the Christian, we know the truth that's given to us in Jesus Christ. We know the truth that's been revealed to us. Um, and as, as we'll hear in the Gospel reading today, um, Jesus prays for us to be a people who are consecrated in the truth. And what does he mean? Well, he means to be consecrated in himself. And so I think the, the uh, well, the simple answer to this, if there is a simple answer, the simple answer is that we, we navigate this by being joined to Christ. Yes? Joined to Christ in prayer. Mm-hmm. What is all this? Yeah. Well, so that's a really important point is that, uh, yeah, we've, we've, we've got a much wider view of just creation. I mean, it can't be underestimated, and for those of you who were not alive, and I'm one of them, uh, when the lunar landing took place, does anybody remember this? And you see those first shots of, the, of Earth from the moon coming across on your TV screen? Do you realize how fundamentally altered everyone's worldview was in about five seconds? We just and of course, there were people who were so tied to what they had believed to that point that they just said, no, it's a conspiracy. If they're doing this on a soundstage somewhere. <laughs> and, and, and people still persist in that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's obvious, right? So it's this, um, I think what, what, what Christians have learned through the centuries is that, that by fidelity to Christ and by reading and meditating on Scripture, um, and, and I will say this as well, not setting aside our inquisitive, um, rational mind in the midst of that, but, but uh, relying upon both faculties, the faculty of faith and the faculty of reason, together. Um, John Paul II says something about this that I really love. He says, faith and reason are like the wings of, it, of an eagle on which he ascends to the heights of contemplation, right? right? Because he's basically saying, you lose one wing, you're done. Um, and I think that's, that's the Christian critique. Of a kind of rationalism. It says rationalism without faith is it's a dead letter. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, at the same time, though, uh, faith without, uh, without reason becomes unhinged from our experience of creation. It asks us to question um, our own faculties. So that's, that's a problem. And, it, and I don't want to get too far into it, but that's a problem. Go ahead. <laughs> 
mais. Reading Augustine in chapter 8, which is just a wonderful part of the whole thing. But his Augustine's struggle is this. Augustine's struggle in the Confessions is that that that, that Marcionism, or not Marcionism, that, that Manichaeism, um, Marcionism is another problem. Uh, <laughs> Manichaeism speaks, speaks into it and basically says this. Augustine, you need to distrust the world around you. It's not telling you the truth. It's a lie. Um, and Augustine's problem is that he, he's, he's largely bought this. And yet he has so much, he knows that he has so much affection for the world and its delights. So which is it? What's he going to do? He's tried extreme asceticism. He's also tried uh, uh, sucking the very marrow out of life. And he finds what? It just doesn't work. Um, it leaves him with this longing. How many describes it very Beautiful, if you've never read it, it's just absolutely incredible. But he's left this deep long. Um, and it's actually as he's lusting after uh, a pear in the garden, remember this? He's, he's, the, the image I get is lying under a tree looking up at this, and he just wants to eat it. But he's telling himself, I won't be happy if I eat this thing. That's not going to bring me happiness. It's not going to bring me blessings. And, and he, he wants to eat it, but he, he, knows, he, he knows he shouldn't eat it, right? And it's in that moment that God speaks to him. Augustine, what? Take and read and shows him this, this Bible. And he, he had always scorned the scriptures up to this point because he had read them in bad Latin translations. He couldn't read Greek. So he had to read bad Latin translations, which was all there was at that point. And uh, he thought it was just beneath him. But there was a copy in the summer home that he was staying in. That's what you do when you're an academic in those days. You go summer in the mountains somewhere. And uh, he goes and he takes and he reads the Gospels in one sitting. Um, and, and it's this encounter with Christ that, that leads him to question, uh, question his, uh, this manichae position. Um, and, and that's what I really want to get, get down to here. And I'll say, say a bit about this. Um, Orthodox Christianity has always said that the counter to idolatry and the counter to to our idolatrous uh, uh, notions is the image of Christ. Um, and, and this means that um, we, we are made, and I think this is very important, we're made with two eyes and hands and the ability to touch and feel things for a reason. Right? It's not unimportant, it's, it's important. Um, and what happens in the Incarnation is that the invisible God takes on human flesh. Um, and as, as Paul writes in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. Um, and that word in the Greek is icon. He is the icon of the invisible God. Um, and so, and this is important too, when, you, when we meet Jesus, right, we don't just meet half of God. Or we don't just meet his human nature only. Because that divides the nature of Christ. We never want to do that. That's actually a problem 
of Orthodox Christology. Um, and we're forced to meet uh, the whole Christ. Um, so when the apostles meet Jesus, they meet God. Yes? Um, when Jesus is crucified on the cross, we don't just say, oh, his human nature was crucified. That's wrong. We say, the only begotten Son of God was crucified. Um, and that means that God died on the cross. It's right wrapped up in the gospel. Um, so the gospel is, and I think this is, this is something I want to say clearly, the, the gospel has at its heart um, that, uh, that a physical nature is the means of our redemption. Yes? Um, and if you want to read more about this, John of Damascus has a, has a wonderful treatise called On Divine Images. But he basically says we're, we're saved through matter. Um, and therefore, um, it falls to us um, to, to rightly revere matter. Now, should we worship matter? No, not at all. Worship is reserved for God alone. Um, but we can give right honor to matter, especially those things that, that depict the images of our salvation. Uh, John says at one point that um, if you have two, two beams of wood and they're crossed, you have a cross, right? And that cross is, is worthy of our, of our adoration. It's, it's an instrument of our salvation. But as soon as the two beams are taken apart, it says, oh, burn them as firewood. Because it's just, it's just wood. Um, this was the battle in the 8th century in the church, and all of it circles around the, uh, the, uh, the Seventh Ecumenical Council. But the question was, as you came up against Muslim aggression, especially in the East, um, how do we as Christians not give offense to the Muslim invaders? This is a really big question. And some were saying, just get rid of all of our images and they'll leave us alone. Won't it be great? We'll have no images, they'll leave us alone, and we'll all be fine. And others were saying, but image is at the center of what we believe. Um, and so uh, the right use of images was maintained. Um, however, there's always been this kind of iconoclastic impulse in the church. And that's not a bad thing, right? Um, it keeps us from idolatry, um, which is why. So you look in this church, and we've got we've got all kinds of imagery, don't we? We don't have nearly enough. We need to get more. Uh, but but you see depictions of Jesus, right? And actually, these are kind of like if there's anything acceptable to uh, mainline evangelical Protestants, it's these three images that you see in the pulpits, right? They're kind of like the catalog top three. Um, you've got Jesus praying in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the rock. You've got Jesus standing at the door and knocking, and then you've got Jesus the Good Shepherd. Um, these are all images of Christ. Am I going on too long? Yes. Um, so, so these are things to keep in mind. Uh, we're going to wrap up next week, but but it suffices to say that um, Christians have always paid, um, has always, have always given honor to uh, to depictions of Christ especially in, like, in the iconographic tradition. Um, not as an end in itself, but as a means towards which we need God. Does that make sense? So the idea behind the image is not like, oh, I'm going to go and like bow down before the St. Paul's window. The, the, the idea is we, we meet God through that image. Um, um, just, I'll give you a quick analogy really quickly. Um, today's Mother's Day, and you're invariably going to look at pictures of your mom, you know, and, and what are you going to say? Here's a picture of my mom. 
Or are you going to say, this is my mom? You're going to say, this is my mom, because the picture participates in the reality that is your mother. That's what an icon is. It participates in the realities of Christ. It participates in the realities of our, of our redemption. Um, same thing with crosses. Same thing with all the other things that are in this church. Um, so, I hope that helps. All right. Okay. Uh, we'll begin in about five minutes.